This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's episode of For Real is sponsored by Book Riot's new podcast, Adaptation Nation, where we read it, we watch it, we talk about it. That's right, Book Riot is taking on your favorite literary adaptations, including new releases, old favorites, underrated gems, and interesting messes. We'll dive into how the books and adaptations themselves came to be, publication and production backstories, casting what-ifs, critical reception, and more to answer that ever-burning question, was the book actually better, and does that question even matter? Up first, Jeff, co-host of the Book Riot podcast, and Amanda and Jen, hosts of Get Booked, will be breaking down the sci-fi classic Dune and the new adaptation. Subscribe to Adaptation Nation on your podcatcher of choice. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Yukura. We're recording on Sunday, November 21st. Hi, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I was just thinking about how recording <laughs> this weekend has been a real journey, and here we are. It has been a journey. I was like, I don't know if, if we've ever said that we're recording on a Sunday before. We always do it earlier. I was telling that to Jenny this afternoon. I was like, I think this is the latest we've ever recorded, and kudos to our audio editor for accepting us being so behind. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jen. Yeah, we've just had a, had a lot going on this weekend. I feel like yes. mishaps abound. We were going to. Kim lost power. Yeah, it was very upsetting. I, I mean, honestly, like, I think we were out pow- without power for like an hour and a half or two hours, but it was very like disorienting. It was the exact time we were going to record. I know. I was like <laughs> sitting in front of my computer, getting ready to like settle in to do stuff and then poosh, power's out. And then it sort of popped on again and I was like, everything's fine. And then it was gone. That happened the day before my wedding. Like, as in we had people over for, you know, like the bridal party or whatever. And then we suddenly were without power and we went out back and the power company was like, oh, yeah, we're uh, re like they were basically like taking out electrical poles and like putting in new ones. Oh, my God. We were like, okay, well, our wedding is like imminent. (laughs) Uh, They were like, oh, sorry. So it turned out fine. But yeah, it's always a it's always a bit of a do. Yeah, it was uh, it was very windy here today, so I assume it was just like a branch took down a power line somewhere. But even so, it's always just like it's that it's that thing about how people when they like know when a thing will be resolved or like know what's coming, they're sort of fine with it, even if it's inconvenient. But when you don't know mm-hmm. what how long something's going to take or how long the line you're going to be in is or whatever, you get very like antsy and have a hard time with it. And that was that was me. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh. Also, speaking of uh. In the intro, we're talking about Adaptation Nation and I'm talking about Dune. Dune is leaving HBO Max, according to Google, uh, tomorrow, the November 22nd. So after this podcast comes out. And I have been meaning to watch it. So I'm... (laughs) I keep being like, okay, now's your time and it has to be tonight. So I'm hoping to get that in. I did watch it. I thought it was 
I've never read the book, Dune, like, so I, I really had, like, no idea other than, like, reading a couple of summaries, just being like, what's going on here? It was pretty good, I guess. I've heard it ends very abruptly because it's a part one. Oh, yes, it does really end abruptly. But I knew that because one of the reviews I had read mentioned that. So I felt okay with the pacing. It was more like there's so much going on and they have to do a ton of exposition to sort of like situate you in this world and like why any of this matters. And they thought of some like creative ways to do the exposition, but it's still like, okay, (laughs) thanks for explaining all that. Like when will something happen? And then like you said, as soon as things start to happen, then it ends and you're like, oh, great. (laughs) I did hear that it's very atmospheric. It is. So I don't don't know if I'm excited about that or not. But the main thing I know about Dune is um, the sandworms. (laughs) That's what my sister knows too. And Spice World. Yeah. And this feels like Beetlejuice and the Spice Girls. (laughs) That might be all. There's a boy whose name is like Paul, which feels weird for a sci-fi thing. But Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, the end. That's all I know. Well, I well, you'll have to tell me what you think after you after you watch it. That's about what I went into it with as well. So, um, do you have any follow up? I do. I, I actually like have actually been reading nonfiction this month. I decided in the November I was going to try to just read nonfiction because it's November and I like alliteration. Mm-hmm. And I actually have finished some books. The two that I finished, I think, since the last podcast was uh, "The Art of Gathering" by Priya Parker, which is a book all about like the best ways to gather and why we gather and how to make your gatherings more effective and. It was really, really interesting and gave me a lot to think about. And then the other one is Disability Visibility by Alice Wong, which is an essay collection by disabled uh, author just writing about kind of the intersectionality of their disabilities and some of their other life experiences. And as if, like with any essay collection, like it's some are better than others, but it overall was really fascinating. So I can recommend both of those now. Oh, yeah. Disability Visibility is great. Um, I have not mm-hmm. read The Art of Gathering, but it feels more relevant now that we are starting to do that more yeah which is great um i'm trying to think if i have any follow-up i don't think so i finished (laughs) jesus and john wayne but i think i talked about that last time i think so yeah and then i've Mm -hmm. just been reading like agatha christie so that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do that my my version of agatha christie is young adult fantasy novels so nice yeah this was a quick sidebar is that i was i I again forget if i mentioned this last time but i'm i'm reading or i just read the blue train because i'm reading all of the poirot novels in order and i at the same time i'm reading the book about chanel on the riviera which talks about Mm. 1930s and 40s french riviera and it also mentions the blue train because the blue train went from like london to paris to the riviera and it was like very fancy so i was able to get some like non-fiction background on it as i was reading this book which is good because the book definitely assumes that you know what the blue train is (laughs) (laughs) so anyway let's talk about our first sponsor which is the good kings by kara cooney from national geographic books Written in the tradition of historians like Stacey Schiff and Amanda Foreman, who find modern lessons in ancient history, this provocative narrative explores the lives of five remarkable pharaohs who ruled Egypt with absolute power, shining a new light on the country's 3,000-year empire and its meaning today. From Khufu, the man who built the Great Pyramid at Giza as testament to his authoritarian reign, and to Harka, the last true pharaoh who worked to make Egypt great again. <laughs> I don't love that phrase. We discover a clear into understanding how power was earned, controlled, and manipulated in ancient times. Um, if you loved Kara Cooney's previous book, When Women Ruled the World, then you will love this sequel. And uh, the pharaohs, if anyone is interested, are Khufu, 
Senestret, Akhenaten, Ramses II, and Taharka. Uh, I have heard of a couple of those from the movies The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. So <laughs> if you also are a fan of those, this could appeal to you because uh, who doesn't like those movies? So again, that is The Good Kings by Kara Cooney from National Geographic Books. Thank you for sponsoring. That one sounds really fun. I went through a very long and detailed Egyptology phase when I was in middle school, I think. Oh, that's the right time for it. It's still like, I still love that kind of stuff. I, I get jazzed. So do you, that sounds fun. Do you also love the Mummy movies? I do. Yes. Did you see much. the third one? I don't think so. I think just I think I just saw one and two. I saw three in theaters because I love Rick and Evie so much. And I know they recast Evie as, with Maria Bello because Rachel Weisz was suddenly too good for the series. But um, <laughs> I love her. But it's it was fun. And Michelle Yeoh was in it. And she's so good. She's so good. It had like Yetis. It was a very, yeah, it was very, like, different. Huh. I don't know that I would need to watch it again, but it was was a fun (laughs) movie. All right. That's going on my list. Uh, All right. With that digression, we will talk about nonfiction in the news. So uh, news stories in the world of nonfiction for the last few weeks. The only one we wanted to bring up this week was that the National Book Awards were given out this week, or I guess last week now, uh, and the winner of the nonfiction award was All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family Keepsake by Tia Miles, which I was really excited I was going to try and read this weekend because I have it out from the library right now, and then I got the notice that it's due back at the library tomorrow, and I was not going to have time, so I'm going to have to return it and then get it another time. Oh. I know. That was a real bummer, but I'm excited that one won. It sounds interesting. Yeah, it's on so many lists. Yeah, it's been on a lot of lists. And I feel like it was like a little under the radar for some, like I didn't see a lot of yeah. reviews and stuff of it, but it's been on a lot of end of your list. So that's kind of a fun, I think that's always fun. Uh, all right. So with that, we will jump into new nonfiction, which is books that are out now or within the last few weeks that we're excited about. Um, my first one is called The Deeper the Roots, A Memoir of Hope and Home by Michael Tubbs, uh, which came out November 16th from Flatiron Books. Uh, it's Oprah, I think, has an imprint with Flatiron, and so this is one of her uh, titles. And so this one is really fascinating to me because it is – I didn't know when I picked it up until I started doing a little bit more research about Michael Tubbs. It's actually a political memoir, which I am on the record as saying I do not like. And so so I was like, well, I guess I'll give it a try and see what I think. And it does some of the things I don't like about political memoirs, which is that I feel like they really like flatten down the harsh edges of people because they're writing them because they're trying to like get elected for another position. And this one does that a little bit, but his story is so interesting and he has such a cool perspective on his upbringing and his political experiences that I didn't mind the sanding down of the edges as much as I thought I would. So I didn't mind the sanding down of the edges as much as I thought that I would. So uh, Michael Tubbs was his kind of big political achievement is that he was the youngest mayor of Stockton, California. He was elected to that position when he was, I think, 26 years old. So yeah, so he grew up in Stockton, California his, uh, to essentially a single mom because his father was incarcerated for most of, almost all of his child and young adulthood, um, even into his college experience. And so he was a kid who really was ambitious kind of from the start, both because of his mom's and his aunt and his grandma's uh, influence, but also just because that's his personality. But he struggled... He was good at school, but he struggled to get along with his teachers. Um, He writes a lot about his experiences as a black kid in school, having a lot of white teachers, and how he thinks that he was treated differently because of the race of his teachers and his race, and about some of sort of the systemic 
injustices there are in education. So, But he uh, eventually is able to go to Stanford University. Um, he's the first generation of his family to go to college. And while he's at Stanford, he is a student leader. He does a lot with tutoring and support for students trying to get into college and trying to uh, succeed at school. Uh, he has a internship at the Obama White House, and then after college decides, or at the end of his college career, decides that he's going to run for city council in Stockton. And so he is elected to the Stockton City Council, and then shortly after that, decides to run for mayor. And so in 2016, at the age of 26, he was elected the first black mayor and the youngest ever mayor of a major American city. And so the memoir is just kind of that whole experience. And it's really interesting. And I, I think the thing that I also like about it is he is really good at parsing out how personality and circumstance play together in making a person who they are. And while he like has a really like strong personality and a like drive to succeed and is a smart, ambitious, talented kid, he is he never loses sight of the circumstances that he was from. And he is able to see how other kids can't succeed in a situation like that. And really, like, he uses this metaphor. I think I, I can't remember where it comes from. If it's a poem, but of roses growing in concrete and that kids shouldn't have to try and do that. And so it's just a really fascinating memoir. And he is an interesting guy, a good writer, and just really like a cool story. But that really does bring the kind of policy issues that affected the policy issues that could have changed the way he was brought up. He never loses sight of those and does a really good job of sharing them and articulating them and making them part of his story. So despite it being a political memoir, which I generally don't like, I can recommend this one and I am really liking it. Uh, the, Deep, the Deeper the Roots, A Memoir of Hope and Home by Michael Tubbs. Oh, that does sound really good. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're we're mostly on the same page about political memoirs and especially I was seeing someone recently talking about not liking to read books when they're still too close to the mm. subject at hand, which we've definitely talked about on here. Mm -hmm. I think some book recently came out about the pandemic and I was like, nope. Too close. <laughs> still too close. I know how long it takes to write books and <laughs> how could you be doing this in this short of time? Mm -hmm. Anyway. Um, okay. So my next book uh, people have probably heard of, but um, wanted to give it a shout out on here. It is The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story by Nicole Hannah-Jones. This is based on the New York Times Magazine's award-winning issue, uh, also called The 1619 Project. And this is a, a large book because it has a lot of content and uh, contributions from different authors. Nicole Hannah-Jones is, of course, she was denied tenure this year at the University of North Carolina uh, for her critical journalism. And it's just sort of been at the center of a lot of discussions, uh, including the one on critical race theory, which for some reason people are upset about. So in 1619 Project, A New Origins Story, it has 18 essays and 36 poems and works of fiction um, from different contributors that all talk about the legacy of slavery in present-day America uh, and talks about how the inheritance of 1619, which is the year that a ship arrived in Virginia with um, enslaved people from Africa, like the, the first recorded instance that we know. So this is like 
the beginning of uh, the enslavement of people in America, 1619, and then how this still impacts us today in every area of life. Uh, it's sort of like woven into our beginnings. Because again, no, when people think of the beginning of America, they think 1776. We're over 150 years before that with the arrival of these people. So one of the important things that she talks about from the outset, and which I think is starting to kind of get more into vocab is, um, again, not using the word slaves, talking about enslaved people, and not using the word plantation, which I think is a a more recent idea, but instead uh, choosing words like labor camp and forced labor camp, which really, I think, demonstrates the importance of vocabulary choice and how certain things tried to sort of gloss over <laughs> what actually uh, was like the, the case. And with these words, it sort of starkly reminds you of what was going on. Some of the contributors include Michelle Alexander and Carol Anderson, who we've definitely talked about on here before. Jasmine Ward, who's just such a good writer. Brian Stevenson. He's a Kiesi Lehman, Abram X. Kendi, like Martha S. Jones, who's, you know, written some amazing stuff about suffrage. It's just a wide gamut of authors. So it's another one of those books where not only are you kind of getting this very current debate sort of information, but also you're getting to sample a lot of different authors at the same time, which I always like survey things like that. So uh, again, that is The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story by Nicole Hannah-Jones. Very excited that it's out now. Yeah, I'm really glad you talked about that. And I was just reading the list of contributors that you have in our notes. And holy moly, is this a really amazing list of people. Jason Reynolds, who does awesome YA writing, Claudia Rankine, Dennis Smith, Natasha Trethewey. Like, there's there's so many good contributors to this one. So yeah, awesome. Great pick. My next pick is uh, a collection of essays, uh, These Precious Days by Ann Patchett, which comes out November 23rd from Harper. And I love Ann Patchett and I love her essays. And so, like, of course, I was going to talk about this one. She is just, she's such a good writer. And I think the thing that I like about her essays is that they make me think and they make me sort of review how I see the world, but they, they don't ever feel hard. And Sometimes we need to read things that are hard and like often that is an important thing to do. And sometimes you need to just read things that you're sort of like, yes, this is really a good story. And I'm interested in these thought experiments or these things that she's thinking about and like pulling from her own life. So the main, I think, center essay of this, uh, all, these precious days is this amazing story about an unexpected friendship. So um, it starts because Patchett got an early galley of Tom Hanks's short story collection and she's reading it. And then she gets a chance to like meet him and she manages to meet Tom's assistant, Sookie, who then comes and stays with them. And then the pandemic hits and she ends up just staying with her, Patchett and her husband for months and months. And it is about this unexpected friendship found during a time when like connection was so hard to find. And I read it that one when it was published. I think it was maybe, I don't remember what magazine it was in, but it was so good. And so the other essays in this book are really just awesome. I'm sure it's about loving Katie Camillo's children's books. She writes about the vision of Eudora Welty. She there's a, just a ton of stuff in here about like loss and love and friendship and connection and just really great stuff. So I just, I find her essays very comforting and nice to read. So I am excited to finish up this one. These Precious Days by Ann Patchett. 
trying to think of what I've read of Ann Patches. I know when I was very into opera when I was like 14, I read Bel Canto and that was so yes. great. And then, oh, I read, um, is it her friendship book? The poet Lucy something. Truth and Friendship? I'm good. I'm <laughs> truth, and, truth and Beauty, I think. Truth and Beauty. Yes. Okay. Truth and Beauty is great uh, in terms of Ann Patchett uh, nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And also, I think I think Lucy – I'm so sorry. I should look up her last name. Lucy Greeley. Lucy Greeley. Uh, Memoir of a Face. I read that, if mm-hmm. that is the name mm-hmm. of it. And it's I think so. also really good. Yeah. Her, her last essay, I think her – another essay collection, This is a Story of a Happy Marriage. I also read that one, and it was really, really great. So she's just good all around. Oh, it's Autobiography of a Face. Ah, there we go. That's it. Okay. Well, anyway, point being, Ann Patchett's great, so thank you for talking about that. Um, all right. My other new release is How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America by Priya Fielding Singh. This is, as you might be able to tell from the title, focusing on how inequality manifests in America via how we eat and looks at what we eat and why according to sort of like our background. Priya Fielding Singh is a sociologist and an ethnographer and looked at dozens of families from a variety of educational, economic, and ethno-racial backgrounds to look at why we eat the way we do. But as in, um, I feel like this is sort of like the way that sociology studies go. There's like a, she like zeroes in on four families. And these are the Bakers, who are a black family living below the federal poverty line. The Williamses, a working class white family just above it. The Ortegas, a middle class Latinx family. And the Canes, an affluent white family. Um, And sort of just looking at like where people shop, how much they spend on food, you know, what sort of, like what is influencing why they choose what they do, including, you know, sort of like advertising campaigns and all this kind of stuff. So I don't know, I just really, I feel like as I've gotten older, I've gotten even more into to sociology studies. <laughs> and this book, I don't normally think about why I eat the way I eat, which is mostly I eat a lot of hummus. And <laughs> I'm sure there's a reason for that in terms of me being like a, I don't know, what is my time of life? I'm in my mid 30s and I'm a white lady. So that feels right, right? Like, wouldn't you be like, oh, yeah, stereotypical, of course you read Thomas. So, but that's, there's a whole reason behind, like, marketing and advertising and whatever for that. So she looks at this kind of thing. But again, that is How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America by Priya Fielding Singh. That one also sounds really fascinating. I feel like I saw you put that in the newsletter and I was like, oh, that looks, that looks really good. So I'm glad you talked about it again because I, it's going on my list. Yay. And our second sponsor, let's just talk about that real quick, It is Art of Protest, Creating, Discovering, and Activating Art for Your Revolution by DeNichols from Candlewick Press. From the psychedelic typography used in Make Love Not War posters of the 60s to the solitary raised fist, some of the most memorable and striking protest artwork from across the world and throughout history deserves a long, hard look. Readers can explore each piece of art to understand how color, symbolism, technique, and typography play an important role in communication. Guided by activist, lecturer, and speaker, DeNichols' powerful narrative and stunningly illustrated by a collaboration of young artists, this volume also has plenty of tips and ideas. It is a fully comprehensive look at the art of protest. Sounds so good. (laughs) Just as someone who is really, like, not great at graphic design slash art, um, looking at sort of why, you know, like this color is chosen and what is this symbol and what is the technique and again, typography that 
Yeah, that's fantastic. So if you are interested, which you should be, it is Art of Protest, Creating, Discovering, and Activating Art for Your Revolution by T. Nichols from Candlewick Press. That sounds really excellent and could potentially make a great holiday gift for someone on your list if that is a, a thing that they are interested in. Good point. Yes. Speaking of holiday gifts, our segment for this week <laughs> is our holiday gift guide. So we requested some recommendations from people either to give us gifts or for themselves, and we got a few. So we're going to go through those and then offer some of our suggestions for potential gifts for people in your life or yourselves, depending on your particular interests. So our first request came from Tara. She says, I'm looking for a recommendation for a book that, that I loved so much that I read it twice this year. It's called Little Heathens and is by Mildred Armstrong Kalish, and it's her memoir about growing up in Iowa during the Great Depression. Each chapter describes some aspect of her life on the farm, and I found her life, seasons, and rituals on the farm to be so idyllic and comforting that I would love to read something else like it. So um, I have two ideas for this one um, that are both, I think, about seasonality and how we can do better and more of embracing seasons in our lives. Um, and so the first one is, I think, maybe a little bit harder to get. So that's why I decided to do with both of them. So the first book is called The Heart of Things, a Midwestern Almanac by John Hildebrand. And it is a book that came out from Wisconsin Historical Society Press. And I know about this one because I saw him speak at a literary conference I went to several years ago. And this is one of the books that he was talking about. And it is uh, really, really great. So it is a collection of essays about seasonal life in the Midwest. And so um, all of the essays in the book are ones that he wrote as columns for uh, Wisconsin Trails magazine over a period of seven years. And so because they're all columns from that magazine, they all kind of have the same structure. They're all short, less than 700 words. They're all about the Midwest, and they're all about, like, living in that place during particular times. And so it's a collection of... I think it's like 52 essays. So it's like basically one week per year and it's set up in the um, table context each by month. And so there's the four essays per month that you can read that are very much tied to what the weather is like, what the kind of activities are like in like a Midwestern small town during that month or that season of life. And so there's weather, there's wildlife, there's family and traditions all kind of in that particular space. And I just find it very soothing and just very observational. So if you're reading an essay that's at the time of the year that it actually is, you're like, ah, yes, I do understand this like descent into darkness that we're in right now after the time change and into like late November, early December. So I think that would fit some of the like seasonality of what you're looking for. Uh, and so then my second pick is a newer one that I think will be easier to find potentially. Uh, and it's called Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times by Catherine May, which I either talked about late last year or early this year on the podcast because I really liked it. And so this book is about the season of winter and about life seasons where you are forced to take a retreat or to pull back because of like circumstances like an illness or grief or a loss. And then what those feelings of being dislocated because you're like forced to retreat can feel like. And she um, talks about how wintering or the winter is a time to also pull back and kind of does parallels about both of those times. So feelings of pulling back because of life circumstances or pulling back because of the winter. And so there's kind of two parts to the book. Part of it is a memoir. And so it's about Catherine May's own experiences with wintering. Um, she has a season in her life where her husband becomes very ill. Her son has to come out of school. She starts to have some medical issues where she has to take a leave of absence from her teaching position. And so it's about her family's kind of season of pulling back. And then 
She also then kind of does some broader stuff looking at the idea of wintering or of pulling back by pulling in um, stories from literature, things from mythology, um, lessons we can learn from nature, um, and sort of looks at ways we can like celebrate and move with seasons rather than push against them, which I think also ties into the book you mentioned uh, just about sort of like understanding the time we're in and how we can change our behavior to adapt to that outside circumstance. And so wintering the book is about how Catherine May endured like this time in her family, but also embraced the opportunities that this season had for her. And so offer some lessons about, quote, how we relate to our own fallow times, which I, I don't know, that's just a quote that I really like about the, the idea of like wintering. So the, the Heart of Things, A Midwestern Almanac by John Hildenbrand and Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times by Catherine May are my two recommendations for this one. Oh, those are great. And obviously so relevant with the wintering one yeah. at this moment. <laughs> I feel like I read it last year, either in December or January, and I was very like, ah, yes, okay, let's winter. Yeah, the, the sky has just started to be all gray or white most of the time. Mm -hmm. Today was a weird exception, but uh, I'm not super looking forward to January, February, so I should probably pick that one up. <laughs> Okay. Um, for the next recommendation, it uh, Kira is saying, I would love a book recommendation for myself. Fantastic. Thank you, Kira. I love learning about cults. I've read almost every book on Scientology and was wondering if there are books out there like Going Clear, but about different cults. Thank you so much. Keep being awesome. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Kim, do you want to start this one? Sure. So... I have to admit I had a really hard time with this one because I felt like all the book I haven't read a cult book in a while for whatever reason. And I felt like all the ones that I could think of, I was like, that's too obvious. That's too obvious. That So there, she's already going to know this one. So I had to dig a little bit. And so I'm recommending one that I have not actually read, but that all the reviews of it were really good. And so I feel like it's going to be a good recommendation, even if I can't personally attest to it. Uh, and so that is The World in Flames, A Black Boyhood and a White Supremacist Doomsday Cult by Gerald Walker. And I think this one came out in like 2016. And so it is about how, so Gerald Walker grew up in, in a cult. <laughs> His parents were kind of vulnerable and were pulled into this cult when they joined in 1960. They, they were living in Chicago in kind of a dangerous housing project with four of their seven children. And, um, both of his parents were blind because they had lost their sight in childhood accidents. And so they were vulnerable to this cult because they took comfort in the belief that they had been like chosen, even if they had to join this religion that had a white supremacist ideology as part of it. And so they sent tithes in. They were part of this church that boasted more than 100,000 members and were just part of it. And so then there was a prophecy that the Great Tribulation in 1972 would happen and that they would be, I can't remember exactly, I'm not sure exactly what was supposed to happen, but but then it doesn't happen. And so Gerald, who is 11 years old at the time, is like happy that that didn't happen. And then again, the 1975, there was an end time prophecy that also fails. And then he finally begins to like sort of question like, what is happening here if like these end times things are not actually happening? And like, is this actually right? And so he starts to kind of try to figure that and pull away from that. So like I said, all the reviews I read of this one said it was really great. And it's particular, I think, like that bringing of uh, an outside perspective into the cult and, and trying to understand how that would be 
appealing to people as part of what this one is about. So I think it should be really great. So that is The World in Flames, A Black Boyhood, and A White Supremacist Doomsday Cult by Gerald Walker. Okay, well, you said that you didn't want to go for the obvious, and I (laughs) did not have any qualms with that. So let's just look at Jonestown. Um, In particular, I picked the book The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple by Jeff Gwynn. I would say one of the advantage of this, advantages of this book is it's pretty dense in a way where you get a lot of information. Um, not dense as in hard to read, just uh, they, Jeff Gwynn really packs a lot in. If anyone for some reason is not familiar with Jonestown or would like some more info, so it, it was technically called the People's Temple Agricultural Product. Um, the nickname was Jonestown after the leader Jim Jones, who started out as a minister in Indianapolis in the 1950s. That's where the People's Temple was started, and they moved to San Francisco. And originally, it was, you know, very sort of like, oh, we believe in, you know, integration and like social justice. And when I was first learning about it, I was like, oh, no, I would probably have been into this because it seemed very, you know, like welcoming and whatever from the outside. Um, But it quickly became uh, an extremely toxic environment. And Jones became more and more paranoid. And finally, they moved to a settlement in Guyana uh, in South America. And the sort of culminating event there uh, was when uh, United States Congressman Leo Ryan went down there to sort of check on numerous members who uh, their families were worried about them. Leo Ryan was attacked by people from the compound. And then, of course, uh, there was a, a mass suicide um, in 1978, which what was going on in the 1970s? You were just talking about yeah mm-hmm. your thing with the sub. I was just... Mm. Anyway, so this is an extremely shocking event that, you know, people obviously are still talking about. But uh, if you want, again, like there was there's so many layers to this story and so much going on with Jim Jones. And they're, again, sort of like the church's move or I guess the cult's move from San Francisco to Guyana and from the initial start in Indianapolis. Like it's such a, I don't know, they're just all over that. It's a, it's a big story. So that is, again, The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple by Jeff Gwynn. That's a really good pick. And I actually, now that I, as I was thinking about it, I don't think I've ever read a book about Jonestown. Well, there you go. Yeah, I know. So like, maybe it's okay to pick something obvious because there are a lot, we all have gaps in like, you know, the things that we read and things that seem like, oh yes, if you're a person who reads cult books, obviously you would have read about this is maybe, maybe not, not a good assumption. And so, yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks, Kim. No, I, I really – I don't think I've ever read anything about Jonestown before. And so, like, I know, you know, like, the the big little pieces of that story, like the thing about Dune where there's sandworms, right? Like, I know a little bit about Jonestown, but not not the details. All right. So our last request is uh, says, I'm looking for a recommendation for my father-in-law. He's a retired scientist who reads regularly but not voraciously. When he does read, he likes to read history, biography, that sort of thing. I'm looking for some suggested authors to give him or some specific books that he'd find interesting or might broaden his perspective a little bit. Uh, And I feel like this is a perennial challenge, trying to buy books for dads. Dad books. Dad books. Like, (laughs) it's a whole thing. So I don't know why it's always so hard to find dad books because there's a lot of them out there. So I have a couple and Alice has a couple to suggest. So uh, my first suggestion is actually an author, Daniel James Brown. I've talked about him on the podcast before. He's one of my very favorites. Um, He writes really great 
historical narrative nonfiction. So uh, his book of his book that I, I absolutely adore is The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, which is a story about the 1936 Olympic crew team, which was from the United States, which was made up from a bunch of men from Washington State who had to kind of come together and learn to be crew racers. And then they had to compete with co- schools on the East Coast, which traditionally have much more uh, advanced and skilled crew teams than Washington State did at the time. And so it's this like triumphant story of people like learning to work together and overcoming circumstances and then going to uh, the Berlin Olympics and over trying to defeat the the Germans and everything is fun when you're trying to defeat the Germans and the Nazis, right? <laughs> um, and just... I, re- I remember reading this book and getting to the part where they're like doing the gold medal race. And I was like, I know how this turns out, but I am glued to the edge of my seat trying to read through it. He's, it's so great. He has a book that came out earlier this year that I haven't gotten to read yet, but that I also think might be a good pick. Uh, it's called Facing the Mountain, A True Story of Japanese American Heroes in World War II. Uh, Facing the Mountain is a story of four Japanese American families and their sons who volunteered for military service and provided uncommon heroism. So uh, it is about... It is a chronicle of wartime America and the battlefields of Europe, and it's the story of four young men who volunteered with the 442nd Regimental Regimental Combat Team and were deployed to France, Germany, and Italy. Um, And so as Japanese uh, Americans fighting there had particular experiences. And so I think this one probably pulls at the same sense of like underdogs and people trying to serve in different ways. Um, And I think it probably is really great. So I think Daniel James Brown is always a great uh, dad book recommendation. Um, Yeah, so I love the category of dad books, probably because I have some crossover with my own interests. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just also, I have a a dad who had multiple sets of Winston Churchill's books uh, that he was trying to get rid of when he moved. Uh, He was like, does anyone want one of these complete sets? But anyway, um, so I had two uh, recommendations. One is our our oft-recommended Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley startup by John Carreau. I gave this book to my dad, and he loved it. So um, he's he's a, a science-y, uh, meaning he's a, an engineer. But if your dad is a retired scientist, then hmm? um, this is, of course, the story of Theranos, the Silicon Valley startup, and how it was all a big scam. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't even with like, oh my gosh. Uh, it's you know Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of it, and how she brought this idea that you could test someone's blood for all kinds of diseases with a single um, pinprick, and she brought it to one of her professors, and they said, nope, can't do that. And she said, great, I'm going to start a company. And <laughs> It didn't work out. So it's it's just such a it's such a fascinating story. It has so many twists and turns. You keep expecting them to get arrested, and they keep not getting arrested, and until they do. And uh, what was the other? Oh, and then like Henry Kissinger was on the board. It's so many weird things where you're yeah. like, is this a fever dream? But no, it <laughs> happened. So yeah, Bad Blood uh, by John Carreau, and then. King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa by Adam Hochschild. Adam Hochschild really covers uh, a lot of different things in his writing, but this one uh, is probably his best known. It is a uh, a best-selling popular history book, which also feels like daddish, but um, it specifically talks about King Leopold II of Belgium 
and the large-scale atrocities that he committed in the Congo uh, between 1885 and 1908. This is a time period when he controlled the Congo Free State. So there was like 23 years where he did, and he did it through trickery because he was basically saying he was going to set up this like humanitarian thing there. And all the other countries said, okay. And then he ended up just exploiting the people and uh, murdering them and doing it for profit. So anyway, this book brought a lot of attention to it. Not a lot of people were aware that this had happened. And it's uh, a biography of Leopold while also talking about um, the, again, the sort of awful things that happened in the Congo. So it's it's also very well written because it's Adam Hochschild and he does a good job. So that is King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa. Those are both great picks. I have given bad blood to several people um, that would fall in the like dad nonfiction category and it has universally been liked. So yeah, great pick. I have one more suggestion, particularly for the note at the end about broadening perspectives. Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration is both a great historical book and also a great book that helps to kind of reframe um, politics today. So um, she uses the stories of a bunch of different uh, Black Americans migrating from places in the South to places in the North during their Great Migration and tries to show how that period of movement and travel and of yeah, just movement within the United States of people going to different places and setting up community in different towns and different cities changed the landscape of America and how the decisions that were made as Black Americans came to northern cities like Minneapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee, or all the way out to California and the, the West Coast, how um, their, the decisions that were being made by people in power at that time and by individual families really affect how our cities are made up today and how uh, segregation works in cities even now. Um, and so it is a great historical story. She does such a beautiful job of telling, using individual stories to really illuminate big picture historical trends, and then does a really good job of situating those trends within political conversations we can see today. So I think that's a really good one to give as a gift. Both it's hefty and maybe a little intense, but it's really it's really well-written and very good. So The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson is my other suggestion. That's a good one. Yeah. All right. So with that, we will wrap up this week's episode as we normally do by talking about the books we are reading right now. I feel like I'm in the middle of a lot of books, but the one that I feel like most pull to like pick back up and finish is called Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness by Kristen Radke. Um, and this one got on my radar because it's one of the finalists for the Carnegie Award, which is an award given out by the American Library Association. They give out one for fiction and one for nonfiction. And so uh, Seek You is one of the um, nonfiction finalists. It is a, an illustrated um, nonfiction book about isolation and longing, both as individuals and as a society. So she looks at our inner lives and public lives to see how our attempts to feel closer to each other work and don't work. She looks at a ton of different stuff, like the idea of the laugh track, uh, the rise of Instagram, uh, the experiments of Harry Harlow, which I know a little bit about, to just like try and understand loneliness, which feels like it might be sad, but also might be kind of uh, hopeful too in some ways to like explore why this is happening and what is going on plus it's uh, illustrated which feels like that'll be good for my brain also so seek you a journey through american loneliness by Kristen radke oh that sounds really good that's nice i will report back 
yeah, let me let me know if that's good. Uh, I am reading not that. Uh, I am reading Magna Carta: The Making and Legacy of the Great Charter by Jan- Dan Jones. <laughs> that is exactly an Alice book. <laughs> I saw it on Hoopla, the library app, and it was 192 pages. And I said, great. It is really short. Half of it is the history of Magna Carta going back to sort of King John's grandfather, uh, Henry the – no, that's his father. Whatever. goes back to the Plantagenet kings and why the barons got fed up and were like, here, you know, you have to sign Magna Carta and how immediately King John told on them to the Pope. And the Pope said, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> They had to repeal it for a while, and then they brought it back. But basically, originally, it was not supposed – no one had thought it was going to be this long-lasting sign of, I don't know, freedom. But it's very fascinating. Lots of, like, little facts. So the first half is that history, and then the second half is the actual text, and they pair it with the Latin text for people who want to read that. So (laughs) that's – again, my main point is it's a very short book because you have – the latin and then you have descriptions of all the barons who signed it which i'm looking forward to getting to that but i don't know i just feel like you know we talk about these big documents and i don't always know like the background or why they're famous and so it's it's interesting for that reason anyway (laughs) it's fine holiday fun okay in conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing and very patient audio editor is Jen Zink. Thank you, Jen. And if you feel so inclined, we'd love it if you take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, doing that helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. So with that, I'm Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs>